What's our greatest need as people? Lots of people give different answers to that. And at different points, I guess, different motivations kick in for us and we say, well, this is what's really high on my agenda. And things that we really think are crucial, important for us, that when push comes to shove, when a crisis descends upon us, the things that we think are really important, that we invest in, that we desire and we work hard for, really aren't. Many of the things that we think are so crucial are really, in fact, quite non-essential. And that's amply illustrated lots of times, uh, in recent times, sadly, but nonetheless realistically, imagine uh, that uh, the house where you live is tonight going to burn to the ground. Imagine your home and imagine somehow that starts to burn for whatever reason, the air conditioning overheats or something, and you have five minutes, you have limited time, you have to go through the house and you have to grab what is really, really important to you. What would you grab? Turn to the person beside you, besides Cassandra, who's by herself. You talk to yourself. Everybody else, turn to the person beside you and tell them, what would you grab? And then I will mentally work out what you're going to say. What would you grab? Gee, you guys are grabbing a lot of stuff. Right again, enter. Richard and Brenda, what would you grab? <laughs> oh, congratulations, Brenda. We didn't know, but that's just wonderful. Yes. So you'd grab the kids because they're incapable of getting out of the house by themselves. <laughs> oh, of course. Oh, I understand that one. Yes, I identify heavily. Somebody else. Somebody had their hand up over here, Tracy. Um, yep. That's the number one choice. Car keys. Your car key. So you can get in the car and drive away from the house. Sensible choice. Somebody else. What would the McCulloch's grab? Obvi yeah. An iPhone for Pete, by the look of things. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, you grabbed your Bible. <laughs> wow. What a spiritual giant we have amongst us tonight. <laughs> Sorry, Pete, I shouldn't pick on you. It's only because you can take it, mate, that's why. Tom. <laughs> that's creative. And you would plug it into what? Yeah, yeah. Photos and pets, the number two choices. And yet, we spend a lot of our time, don't we? I need a bigger screen, I need a bigger, better car, I need more books, I need whatever, more clothes or something. And when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, these things aren't important. Other things are more important to us, relationships and memories. So, what's the greatest need that we have? Well, it's none of those things, that's on the physical level. If we step back and you think objectively, what is our greatest need? It's not education. Because if our greatest need had to be an education, then the Lord Je uh, God would have sent us uh, a teacher, an educator, sent us a research assistant or something like that. If our greatest need had to be something else, if it had to be, we need more help to handle our money, he would have sent us an economist or a financial advisor or something like that. Our greatest need, obviously, is a spiritual need. It's sin. And that's why God responded to our greatest need in sending us a saviour, the Lord Jesus. Sent us somebody who could be a mediator, who could reconcile us to himself, someone who would 
stand in the gap and be a substitute for us, take the penalty for our sin, pay the debt that we couldn't pay spiritually, that he, he could re-establish peace with God, re-establish a relationship with God. Jesus is certainly the reason for the Christmas season and it's a great opportunity to talk about him. And so Christmas is the time when he is born and just like anybody's birth, there are arrangements that have to be made. So you think about when babies come into the world, what things have to happen. Well, we rush out and we have to buy things. Even when you become grandparents, things that you used to have, you've gotten rid of in the meantime. And we found that when our grandkids came along, we had to go and repurchase, refine certain things. We had to get a car seat for the car that we didn't have. Not for us, obviously, but for when the grandkids visited. You had to go and buy a cot for when they visited. And so if you're the parent and you're expecting a baby, you have to go buy all of those sorts of things, cots and toys and clothes and bibs. You have to prepare the room. Some families need to change their car in order to be able to fit uh, either the car seat into it or if, depending on the number of child, to increase the number of kids they have. You have to book the hospital. You have to see the doctor. There's lots of arrangements. So this passage, Luke chapter 2, points out to us some of the arrangements and those who were involved in it for the birth of the Lord Jesus on both a human level, that's where we'll start, and then obviously on a spiritual level. So who was involved? Well, Luke tells us, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So number one, there are six people involved in Jesus' birth. The first one is the emperor, Octavian, whose name was Augustus Caesar. He reigned for about 41, 41 plus years brought incredible stability to the Roman Empire. Reigned about 20 years before Jesus was born, reigned about 20 years after he was born. Introduced a thing called the Pax Romana, it's the peace of Rome, right throughout the Roman Empire. He was a great builder, a good emperor, a great organiser. But he needed money. There had been peace, the world was sick of fighting. And the Roman Empire had conquered many parts of the world and so there was this breathing space for those 20 years. But in order to maintain that peace, he needed soldiers. In order to have soldiers, he needed money to pay for them. And he introduced a whole system. Eventually, through his advisors, he came up with a plan. He came up with the idea of having a census. Hadn't been done before. That every male child, women didn't count in that world, <clears throat> every male child, every uh, head of the house, male head of the house, would be counted every 14 years, which is probably about how often the generation was reproducing. The girls at 14 were getting married and having kids. So every 14 years, the way to uh, organise this was they said that you would have to return to the place of your birth, of your origin. And so the emperor instituted this decree. Here he is in Rome. And it's every 14 years, and it's even before Mary is pregnant. God was at work through the Roman emperor, instituting a decree, which it eventually would mean that Joseph would need to lead Nazareth in the north and travel 130 k south to Bethlehem because of his decree. He's the first one involved. Secondly, there is the governor. The governor is Quirinius. Um, Quirinius was the governor of Syria on several occasions, both before in about 10 to 7 BC and then again afterwards, 7 AD and afterwards. So this is during the first time that he was the governor in the far east of the Roman Empire, the governor of Syria, 
Roman Empire is divided into different provinces and there is the province of Syria and Judah is part of the province of Syria and he is the governor of it. And he is the one who would implement the decree from the emperor. And it's the governor who says, I want the name of the child, the male head. I want the property that he possesses. I want his occupation and I want his kindred or his relatives. Those four things. And it would have been recorded in Roman documents William Barclay and other New Testament scholars suggest that these documents were then kept and filed in the, in the Jerusalem temple. That would have meant when Jesus was born, his name would have been written down on a Roman record. Father's name, Joseph. His name, Jesus. Occupation, carpenter. Property that was owned, whatever they owned up in Bethlehem and so on. And from that, taxes would be derived. Recorded on a parchment, stored in the Jerusalem temple, which we don't have because the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in AD 70. But we do have the records of other censuses from other years all the way up to AD 270. We have the actual copies of some of the census or portions of it. And in fact, I've got a copy here tonight. This is out of William Barclay's commentary because uh, Luke tells us uh, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. And people questioned that. That said, that's not likely, that everybody would have to go back to the place of origin. Well, this comes out of Egypt, and Egypt was similar to and close to Syria. So the chances are, they surmise, that what happened in Egypt would have certainly been happening in Syria. So this comes from a government edict from Egypt, and it says this. Gaius Vibius Maximus, prefect of Egypt, orders seeing that the time has come for the house-to-house -house census. It is necessary to compel all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing outside their districts to return to their own homes, that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also diligently attend to the cultivation of their allotments. Providence of God, we find this parchment, this actual edict written down. And that's the sort of thing that was going on. So who was involved in the arranging the birth of the Lord Jesus. Well, the Roman emperor is involved, even though he's not aware of it. The governor of Syria is involved, even though he's not aware of it. Um, thirdly, verse 4, the carpenter himself, Joseph. He is involved. Joseph decided to take his new wife with him on this 130-mile, 130-kilometre 130 journey. Uh, she didn't have to go. It was only the men who were important who would be counted. And she was very pregnant. So why did he take her? Well, we're not told. We're simply told that he did take her. Maybe at least take a three, four-day journey. Um, and for whatever the reason, you can surmise, and my guess is, very small village, Nazareth, small town, about 50 to 80 families, not thousands of people, hundreds of people, where everybody knew everybody. And everybody knew what was going on in everybody else's life. And to leave her alone in Nazareth, would have made her the victim of gossip and nasty comments and everything else. That's my guess. And that's why Joseph takes um, Mary with him. And I guess perhaps they had a great time rejoicing in the fact they were actually doing God's will on the way. The emperor, the governor, the carpenter, the innkeeper. Verse 7. He gets a bad rap, this guy. <clears throat> it says, She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's him, the innkeeper. I mean, what did he do? He didn't do anything. 
what could he do? He gets bad press and we've been a bit hard on him over the years. His job as an innkeeper would have been, his responsibility was twofold. He had to provide fodder, food for the animals and some sort of um, fuel for the guests in order to be able to cook their food. He wasn't responsible to provide them for uh, anything else. He didn't have to provide food for them. The people had to buy or bring their own or whatever else. So food for the animals and fire for the guests to cook in and they had to look after themselves. So when Joseph and Mary eventually arrive in Bethlehem, everything is full. All of the heads of all of the homes, all the male heads have all descended upon the town. Everything is booked out. There's nowhere for them to go. And it's not that he is rejecting them, it's just that, what can he do? You can't kick those guests out. They've already unpacked and settled in. You can't kick them out. So maybe, tradition says, maybe he is the one who suggested to them, look, I have the stables out the back, or there is a cave over here. It's a place where the animals are staying, or perhaps something like that. So the innkeeper had some sort of input. Whatever the accommodation was that he provided, you need to think of it in terms of a one-star accommodation. Uh, pun intended. Think of a car park outside of a transport cafe. Think of a bus stop shelter. Think of the backyard of a pub or something. It wasn't classy and it wasn't well prepared. When God sent his son into the world, he came into the sun in great humility in order to identify with all of us in all of life situations. It was very basic. So the innkeeper had some role, responsibility in the arrangement for Jesus' birth. The emperor, the governor, carpenter, the innkeeper, his mum, Mary. Verse 7 again. She gave birth to her firstborn son and the Bible says that she wrapped him in cloths. Where was Joseph? I think he had passed down. That's not funny because I nearly passed down. So I understand. He was a bloke and blokes aren't really good at this time. Though modern blokes seem to be better than older blokes. But she brought that cloth with her. It would have been a square cloth that would have had a tail running off it and she would have laid the newborn babe in it and wrapped a cloth around him and then wrapped him up with the rest of the, the tail that went around and around and around. She did it. She placed him in it, the scripture says, and she placed him in the manger. Probably she got Joseph to fix the manger up because he's a carpenter. You know, fix it, clean it, get it ready. Normally a midwife or some female relative would have been on hand to give her assistance but there, we don't read of any other women and we do read and understanding it. there's lots of male heads around but like most blokes they were pretty useless finally all of these people involved in Jesus' birth but behind it all and working is the Lord himself behind all of these things God was arranging making decisions Galatians 4 4 says that at just the right time God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. God was at work. God was at work behind uh, the emperor making a decree a year or even a couple of years before Jesus was actually born in the world, working his purposes out in the timing of it exactly. Hebrews 10 verse 5 says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. Holy Spirit prepared the body for the Lord Jesus. So 700 years previously, God had predicted the Lord Jesus would be born um, 
the Messiah would be born and would be born in Bethlehem. God had been working his purposes out. We are reminded just through this simple analysis that God is a God who keeps his word, that when he speaks, as he had done it several times in the Old Testament, he kept his word, he kept his promise. What God says comes to pass. The Bible, in fact, says that God watches over his word to perform it. So when God says something, it can be absolutely embraced and relied upon that he is a God who keeps his word. That's a great truth and a promise for us. Read your Bibles and read them carefully. And when you see and understand what God is saying, embrace it. Well, that's the acknowledgements of his birth. What about the announcements? When a child comes into the world, we want to tell people. We have a responsibility to tell relatives and close ones. We send texts or we phone or send emails or whatever. We have cards and all sorts of things. Well, God did exactly the same thing. How does God announce the birth of the Lord Jesus? Several ways. He has the heavens declare it. He creates a star, a very special star, the star of Bethlehem. Luke doesn't tell us about it. Matthew certainly does. But the star got the attention of some wise men in the east who through studying the scriptures and the position of the star in the skies, somehow God spoke to them that the Messiah had come into the world. God announced the birth of his son. Secondly, God sent an angel. In fact, he sent a choir of angels to some shepherds out in the field. And significantly, the angel uses three titles of the Lord Jesus. I bring you great news of great joy for all the people. Today in the city of David, a saviour is born for you. He is Christ, the Lord. Three titles to identify him. And you will find him you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The Saviour, the Christ, the Lord is a baby. He has come. He has arrived. We're announcing his birth. And the truth has been said probably every Christmas. We will never know that this is good news. That's what the angel says. I bring you good news of great joy. You won't know that personally until you can embrace and say that he is my Saviour. He is my Lord told you the story before and tell you again very quickly of a little boy who was in hospital how his leukemia was dying and the chaplain the pastor visited him quoted to him psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd he said the most important word in that first first verse those five words the lord is my shepherd that's the most important word my you need to be able to say the lord is my shepherd when the little fellow passed away he died holding his ring finger parents didn't understand what that meant they thought it was strange and the chaplain was able to explain to them that he came to a point of understanding and expressing the lord is my shepherd so to we tonight you need to be able to say jesus is my savior he is my lord not just the savior and the lord and then of course with the angel announcing this there were other angels appeared and there was a choir and they burst into magnificent song um, and there was an announcement given from the very highest star, from God in heaven, to the very lowest, the shepherds, whom we don't fully appreciate, but they were the despised of society. They were mistrusted. They were the lowest of the low. They weren't always like that, but they had become like that. Over the course of centuries, the shepherds had become rogues and criminals. They were night watchmen, if you like, because they couldn't get any other job. Nobody trusted them. They were not allowed to testify in court. They slept out in the open, and because... They were out in the open and they couldn't perform the daily religious rituals. They were forbidden to attend the 
temple services and the synagogue service. They were the excluded, the outcasts of society. And God sends a message to them because God wants everybody to hear. God wants everybody to know from the highest to the lowest. Thirdly, God announced, obviously, through the angels to the shepherds and then through the shepherds to others. They are the third ones who are involved in the announcement process. They went at once to Bethlehem. There must have been several flocks or something gathered together and the shepherds arranged for somebody to stay behind and look after them and the rest of them went in the journey at night into Bethlehem. Went looking for a stable. There was a baby in a manger. And the scripture says that they found him. Their example is our, should be our example. What they did, we should do. They were told something that was spiritually significant. And they didn't just shrug their shoulders and say, that's interesting. They actually made an effort. They examined. They went to verify. They went to find out that this is true. They checked it out. That's what we should do as well. And verse 17 tells us that when they had seen him, they told others. That's always intrigued me. Who did they tell? It's nighttime. People are asleep. Did people wake up? Did they wake people up? We're not told. We're just simply told they told others. Maybe they stayed and the sun came up and maybe people were getting up. And on the process of getting up, they told them on the way back to the sheepfolds that night, whoever it was. But the scripture certainly says, and everybody that they told were amazed at the things that they heard. The shepherds examined it, checked it out, having verified it, are now witnesses testifying to others. God made sure the announcement of Jesus' birth was being broadcast. And then fourthly, Luke doesn't tell us this, but the fourth one is the wise men. Time passed, months later, maybe 12 months later and maybe a bit longer. Wise men came from the east and they said, we saw his star when he was born. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Because we have come to worship him. And Herod gets involved and the religious leaders get involved and so on. Um, but it's the wise men who are announcing the birth of his son. God's done his part. He's arranged for the birth of his son he sent his son he arranged for the announcements of his son he's recorded it for us in the scriptures and now it's our part we need to acknowledge his birth if we hear the story it's up to us to make a response to it and the bible gives us various responses that people make they're all good responses but some of them are inadequate responses they're good but they're not enough Firstly, verse 18 of Luke chapter 2, it says, The people who heard the shepherds were amazed. That's a good response. It's an appropriate response, but it's not enough. They enjoyed the story. They enjoyed the experience. <clears throat> it's like people who come every Christmas, might come to church only at Christmas time, or they might come to the carols, and they enjoy singing the songs. They enjoy the story. They participate in it, but that's it. It never goes any further probably the biggest group in our nation and in our community they acknowledge it but it's a fleeting acknowledgement it's an amazing story but for them it's perhaps only a story certainly better than Herod's response who was angry and hostile rejected it certainly better than the religious leaders who were just uh, informed but indifferent at least these people were amazed that's one response, and maybe that's your response. It's good, but it's not enough. Verse 19 tells us Mary's response. When the shepherds came, 
when the wise men came and she's hearing these stories, she had the angel come and tell her before the birth. The Bible says that she treasured these things in her heart and she pondered them. She thought about them. She thought about the implications and she thought about the consequences. She must have replayed it in her mind. It started to have an impact in her life. We're not given a full description of what it was like, but we certainly know that Mary, when first informed of this, had a very submissive attitude. She accepted it. This is God's will for my life. And she says, yes, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. I don't fully understand, but I accept it. That's her response. That's a good response and an appropriate response for us as well to submit to God, to receive his will into our life. And then, of course, there is the shepherds, verse 20. When they returned, when they'd finished telling people, they went back to their flocks. The Bible says that they returned to their work glorifying and praising God. They were singing and skipping and dancing. They were filled with joy. That's certainly an appropriate response for us. They had an encounter with God through the angels they examined the truth of it for themselves and they found it to be exactly what God had said checked it out and having verified it accepted the truth of it they are telling others and they are also entering into a worship experience they're acknowledging it publicly glorifying God and interestingly they do that as shepherds they return as shepherds they return to their workplace and in that process, in their normal, ordinary life, are glorifying and praising God. That's a great application for us. The reality is that God does not force himself on anyone. He comes to people in many ways, nudges them in our consciences, communicates through his word and through stories, examples like this. He has people come into their path. He surrounds people with other believers some people ignore and suppress these nudges, this influence of God. Some people notice it, but don't act on it. But there are some who embrace it, who desire more, who seek and find. And in the process, like the shepherds, are changed. So the question is obvious for us, which one are you? Where are you at? For many of you, not for all of you, but for many of you, you've heard this story before and for many of you you've made the appropriate response you've been amazed you've pondered you've accepted and you're in the process of this is part of your life journey you continue to praise and to uh, glorify him and seek to serve him well you need to continue to do that especially this christmas but perhaps there are some of you here tonight you're not just there yet you're still on the way well tonight the lord would want you to go all the way to come to that point of acceptance to acknowledge the truth of it and if you can't do that then to do what the shepherds do examine it question it critique it find out if it does stand up to verification allow it to stretch your mind and to think it through ponder these things deeply like mary did augustine the theologian fourth century says this and with his eye close god made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. God made you. God loves you. God wants you in a relationship with him. That's why he sent Jesus. God arranged for his birth. God announced his birth. And now God is looking for people's acknowledgement of his birth. What's your response? 
If you haven't yet made the decision to accept Jesus fully, don't leave tonight without having a conversation with somebody about it. I'm going to pray a prayer that you might want to pray in order to receive Jesus for the very first time. You can pray that quietly yourself. And if you do pray it, come and tell me. Tell someone. Because then there's stuff we want to do that we can help you on the next step in the journey. Stuff we can give you. Both the New Testament or a Bible as well as some other reading material. And for those of you who have made the decision, then I want you to pray tonight. Not just for people here. But for people in our community. Come to our Christmas service and the other Christmas service and the other churches and for them to hear and for them to respond to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been reminded tonight that you have been at work in our world, that you were the one who was behind the Lord Jesus coming. You arranged for his birth through the emperor and the governor and the carpenter and the innkeeper through Mary you were at work you were behind the announcement of his birth through the star and through, through the shepherds, through the wise men and all for the purpose of giving very clear evidence that you are real that you are loving and that you want to address our real need so Heavenly Father we come tonight to acknowledge that we are the ones for whom Jesus came. We are the ones who have sinned. We are the ones who were lost, whom he has sought and found. We ask you to forgive us for our sin. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into our life to be our Lord and our Saviour. That you might direct our lives from this point forward. Help us to ponder and to praise you. We pray that your will might be fulfilled in our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. If you prayed with me, if you prayed that sort of response and that prayer, then I invite you to come and have a chat with me. I'd love to talk to you about that. invite you in this next song if you'd like to just spend that time in reflection and uh, and as we sing through this song take the time to reflect on uh, taking ownership of uh, Christ being our saviour as Dale said so let's um, sing together
burn with the flame of fire consuming all for your sons holy name and with the heavens we declare you are our king we love you Flame 